I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die all right, welcome to The Left is Dead. I am your host, one of your hosts, James Carey. I am here with my co-host, Jake Anderson. Say hello, asshole. H- hello. Hello. Uh, got him. All right. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Hey. All right, we're back. Um, so it's only been a couple days, but let's talk about the news, eh? Hey, yeah. All right, let's do it, eh? I, I live close to Canada, you fuck. Shut up. Sorry. <laughs> again. Say that again. You fucker. No. But all right. Um curse well, words will get us more listeners, Jim. I know they will. That's why I say them all the time. No, they won't get us more listeners. Oh well, you should hear the shit I say on the Patreon. Is no. it white, is it white nationalist propaganda? You bet, buddy. Danny. Shut the fuck up. Fuck you, man. Anyway, all right, settle down. We're, now. we're here settle on down. a weekend. That's what we're doing. It's a vague weekend day that we're recording this. Um, but on Friday, let's talk about this Joe Biden or the Joe Biden regime uh, released the report on the Jamal Khashoggi murder. Eh? Right. And it happened to coincide with. On that very same day, new uh, missile strikes on Syria, which is a different issue. But right, we'll get uh, into that too. But yeah, the let's Khashoggi start with case Khashoggi. Is very interesting. I think it's an extremely important case. And as a true crime writer, I mean, I would love to be able to dig further into it. But it's uh, a little bit above my pay grade in as far as having the resources to really get information on it. But um, it's it's we a, should still dig into it for like a true crime episode. Sure, I mean it, it's a horrifying uh, case, and you know the more you look into the details that have been released, the more horrifying it becomes. I mean, this man was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a good dismembered and dissolved in acid. He, he, I don't he know. Was if he, was dis- he was he was he was dismembered while alive as well. The, the reports that have come out uh, through uh, surve- audio surveillance or audio clips that have been analyzed show that the killers put on earbuds um, to drown out the sounds of his screams. I've asked this a million times. I'm sorry as, to interrupt. As they, as they, used, a, they used a bone saw to, to dismember him, and he was still alive as it was happening. I mean, why, 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 why would you fucking do this in Turkey? Why? Right. Well, uh, because they obviously felt they had impunity to do it. Uh, they would not have done this and it's it, would not, it would not have been approved by uh, the, the crown prince if they didn't have a pretty good feeling that they were going to be able to get away with it. To think that the fucking Turks aren't watching you is so fucking oof but do the turks care i mean they yes didn't... yes yes let me all right i won't this is fucking boring and it's gonna fucking bore people listening to this 
But listen to me. Do you remember the Saudi Qatar split? Sure. Right. After Saudi Arabia and Qatar split over the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood, Turkey backed Qatar because the AKP, which is Erdogan's party, the Justice and Development Party in Turkey, is basically a Muslim Brotherhood party. It is basically a de facto ideological leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. So you have to understand that Turkey took Qatar's side in this, and there is a huge split in like the idea uh, the ideology of Sunni Sunniism across the Middle East. There's a giant split now between the previous backers of ideology like this, which are like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, say like Bin Laden or something. And then there's Turkey backing groups like the FSA, you know, what remains of them in Syria and backing uh you know, Sunni extremists in countries like Azerbaijan and things like that. Like, you have to understand that Turkey has become a giant hole in, like, the Islamic world. Sure, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, th there's a lot. I mean, this this is about the state control over journalism. Uh, at the end of the day... Uh, yeah, it, uh, we'll go like back in, to Saudi Arabia here. In, in text dictators... Uh, that there's always journalists that stick in their craw to take the step to not only kill one, but to kill a very popular one. And to do it in such a fashion is a statement of a feeling of impunity. I mean, that's a big, even for a, a dictator, that's a big step to kill a journalist, especially uh, in, it was done at the, uh, ambassadorship, right? It was done it at, was, yeah, it was at like a consulate or an embassy yeah, and, or whatever. And, and, uh, particularly brutal. And, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't surprise me that Trump, uh, the Trump administration, uh, tried to take the, the crown prince's word on it. Um, well, it, I mean, to be fair to the Trump administration, they were fully open. They were honest. They said Saudi Arabia spends money here. They buy weapons here. Leave it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it, it they they have the ability. They have the unique ability to get to the bottom of exactly. But what, what happened. did? What, but, but okay. But Biden released the report Friday, and what did he? What did the Biden administration say afterwards? About four to six hours after they said. We will not be seeking any justice for Khashoggi. We will not be going after the crown prince. Right, because they probably don't have, I mean, this is not a, a criminal case. When, when, you, when you're talking about, it is a criminal case, obviously, but when you're talking about basically a state assassination, it goes beyond uh, typical criminal cases. And right. not, only, not only do you have to have uh, very good evidence, but there's also the geopolitical ramifications of trying to levy a case against a foreign country. So but it's, a, it's a very complicated situation. To uh, say Trump is any different than Biden when it comes to this issue is ridiculous. I didn't say this. I didn't now, say I know, this. I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying anyone who thinks that Biden is different from Trump on this fucking issue, just look at the fact that Biden released the report this morning, and then by the afternoon he said, we won't do shit. Right, but I, I don't I don't think that's what he he didn't say we're not going to do shit. What they released the report and they said basically at this time we're not like 
you have to view also is, uh, and, and again, I'm not defi defending the Biden administration. What I'm saying is there are chess moves that go along with something like this. Um, you don't just come out and say, uh, we got you, uh, Crown Prince, uh, we're going to get you. We know you did it. Uh, you play this little game and the game they're playing right now is they're saying like, look, uh, this is a big deal and we're looking into it. And uh, right now they don't have, obviously they don't have the direct evidence connecting him or- Yes, they, they do, it was in the report. Yeah, okay. What are you but doing? I, I, I don't know, it's, it's, what do you mean, what am I doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm running- What are you doing? Listen, I'm, listen, I'm here, 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 here. for Biden, that's, that's what I do, Jim. I run interference for neoliberals. Uh, here, even CNN, here's the headline. Biden doesn't penalize Crown Prince despite promise to punish senior Saudi leaders. Right. Uh, look, that's why I'm saying this is an important case. And it, it's, it's international in scope, which is that if, if, a, if, a, if a country can get away with this, uh, you know, look, don't think that this stuff doesn't go on here. Because it does. No, it people, does. They kill are Black Lives Matter activists all, all the all time. All across the world, uh, journalists and activists are assassinated. When they get too close, when they start pissing the wrong people off, they kill them and they get away with it. And so that's not, it's, that's not new to the Crown Prince. It's not new to Saudi Arabia. It happens here too. This is like a, a, a game that's being played. And uh, yeah, I'm not saying Biden's handling it better. I'm saying that uh, Trump had a considerable, considerable amount of time to try and make some headway on this, and they well, didn't. And I'll so, tell you what. Two, two years from now, if the Biden team still has not uh, produced anything more on this, which they probably won't, then yeah, we same treatment. Two years. I admire Trump for at least being honest. Trump said they buy weapons. Fuck you, Biden. What? You give him credit for, okay, I mean, that, that doesn't deserve credit. That's No, that's it. It does. In this fucking fucked up system, it does deserve credit because what does Biden say? Biden says, yeah, we know he did it, but we're not going to punish him because we don't want to make them, quote, a fucking pariah, unquote. You know, okay, Biden I, fucking I, I'd have says. To read the report. I, 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 I'd be surprised if they came right out in the report and said the crown prince definitely ordered this. It doesn't matter if the Washington Post reported early in the fucking morning that MBS reported it directly, which they did, and they based on the report from the Biden administration. Right, and they, they did say that, and, and they then later in the af hang on, they okay, later in the afternoon. They published pieces about Biden saying, we will not alienate Saudi Arabia. We will not make them, like I said, quote unquote, a fucking pariah. We will not put them out in the cold for what they did, even though we love this lib journalist so goddamn sure, much. Yeah, and it, it's, it's fucked up. And look, uh, you know, to your point, look at when they released it. They always release this kind of thing at the very end of the week, and they usually couple it with some kind of geopolitical distraction that will absorb more of the attention, which is exactly what happened with the serious strikes. So yeah, there, this is definitely an active cover-up, and it definitely has, most likely has to do with this very sordid weapons relationship we have with Saudi Arabia. But look, uh, the, didn't the Biden administration retract their, their, their deal with Saudi Arabia over, over Yemen weapons? Uh, yeah, they retracted it 
to say that we'll only provide Saudi Arabia capabilities in a defensive capacity. What that means is totally up to you. Well, what it means to me is that they're pulling back on that. And no, I think that flies in the face of your case that this so. is one. I don't think so. About us, you know, being. I don't think so. Saudi I don't. Arabia. Uh, the what is fucking no because who knows where Saudi Arabia's it's just like weapons of mass destruction who knows where fucking Saudi Arabia's right to self-defense fucking stops and where their right to aggression begins the U.S. will never make that distinction right, well yeah dude come on we're on the same page here Saudi Arabia is one of the worst regimes in the world right but, and I'm just but, saying but the what, U.S. will the never make the fallout war I mean seriously what's the alter are they are we gonna send yeah fucking then the CIA in to assassinate why a plane into their palace I don't know yeah so I mean it, it there's not uh, you know there is a, an option is the option is don't be allies with these fucks right but that that's I mean uh, yeah probably uh, I'm not going to pretend like I know what the hell is going on at the highest levels of government. So, I'm not going to either, but I, I will tell you right now that if Biden was serious about how dangerous the fucking Arabian Peninsula is and like all these weapons deals to normalize re relations with Israel and things like that, if you're serious about that, fucking hold the Saudis accountable. Hold them fucking accountable. Right, but Don't fucking let them go. What does accountability, accountability? I don't know. Murder like? the just, crown prince. Just let me just let me finish. So in the Trump administration, what they do is they do a, a missile uh, strike assassination on on an Iranian general. Is that what you want us to do no. with Saudi Arabia? Well, then what do you then maybe, what do you want them to maybe. do? Maybe actually, maybe. Do you want an extrajudicial assassination of a foreign leader? Mohammed bin Salman. Yes. <laughs> yes okay. i do okay so I, do you do you want to then own ideologically the war that would result from that what war who's gonna stand up to you uh saudi arabia is not <laughs> you really think that saudi yeah arabia i do i think by... the, i think a bunch of people who are locked in a hotel two years ago would be fine if you killed MBS. I don't I'm think not anyone saying, would I'm, give I'm a not fuck. saying I'm against it. What I'm saying is... I don't think anyone would care. I, I, let me put this out there. I don't think anyone inside Saudi Arabia, especially the rivals to the throne that MBS threw in like the fucking holiday in last year or two years ago, I don't think any of them would care. If you fucking like had him shot in the fucking public square, I don't think they would stop you because I honestly think that uh, both the United States and Saudi Arabia's like ruling class realize the danger that MBS poses to the US Saudi relationship. He's a dipshit. All right. And I agree. But, you know, let's. This episode is going to be about Venezuela. So why don't we? Yeah pivot into that <laughs> well i mean there's well yeah well our guest this week is jesus <laughs> rodriguez espinoza he's the editor-in-chief and founder of orinoco tribune and he was the former consul general uh for venezuela to the united states he was based in chicago um we talk a bit about 
what Marxism. We talk about the current situation in Venezuela. Well, this and, is the intro, so we actually yeah, actually haven't well, talked. No, no, no. I mean, we'll go into it, but either way, we're we're gonna get into a few of these topics. You know, we have a subject list written out here. Um, but we get into the current situation in Venezuela. We talk about you know uh, what's changed under U.S. sanctions and the fact that the Biden administration. What do you know? They have no new policy because Venezuela is still under the Trump sanctions. So I think it's important to note that before we go into the interview. Sure. Nothing's yeah. changed. And, and it's, uh, you know, sadly, most Americans don't really pay attention to what's going on in, in Latin America. And it's, you know, probably one of the most important parts of our foreign policy history, what's, what's gone on, what we've done in just pretty much every major country in that region, uh, you know, from El Salvador and, you know, all of those countries. We have participated in fomenting right-wing coups in these countries and specifically countries that try to nationalize their, their resources. That, that seems to be a, a sticking point for America uh, and, you know, the question has to be asked is why? Why are we so scared? Why is our government so scared of seeing uh, Central wow. American, Latin American countries flourish with a different kind of nationalized energy grid? I'll say this before we go into our interview. Here's the buzzword to look out for. Um, land reform. That is the number one thing. It's exciting. I, whether I, it's, can't, I can't think of two words more exciting to me than land reform. Well, whether it's Allende in Chile or um, now look at uh, Bolivia. Yeah. You know, these are countries where land reform was at the top of the socialist ticket. And if there's one word, a buzzword to watch out for in our interview, it is land reform, because that's the one scariest thing to the United States when it comes to Latin America and enforcing the Monroe Doctrine, no matter how outdated it is. So uh, keep that in mind. And yeah, here we go with part two of the episode, our interview with Jesus Rodriguez Espinosa, the editor-in-chief of Orinoco Tribune and the founder and um, also the former Consul General of the United States. Left is dead. I am James Carey back again with Jake uh, Anderson. We are joined today by the editor in chief and founder of Orinoco Tribune, the former consul general for Venezuela. From uh, he was working out of Chicago. That's actually when I met him. Uh, Jesus Rodriguez Espinosa. Um, welcome and uh, thank you for talking to us tonight, Jesus. Thank you, James. Thank you for the invitation. So what a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have you because we're at an interesting time. Obviously, um, you just watched our free and fair elections. 
you know, you watched our, our universally accepted and uh, world standard elections happen here and everybody was fine with what happened. So we'll talk a little bit about, um, you're in Caracas now, right? So yes. we'll talk a bit about, uh, you know, we talked uh, to our guests about Mexico, about the Trump policy and Biden policy, you know, what, uh, the Venezuela policy from Washington looks like in the future would be interesting. So why don't we go into, I guess, after four years of Trump targeted sanctions and general sanctions and everything like that going on in Venezuela, what is um, the current situation like? Because, you know, without Guaido, obviously Venezuela is not in the news too much now, now that the coup yes. failed. They are trying to resuscitate him anyways, but I believe that it's going to be like very hard to do that. But anyway, the situation is complicated. Uh, I mean, Venezuela have experienced firsthand, for, as you said, for the last three or four years, what U.S. sanctions and blockade means. Uh, President Maduro, a few weeks ago, in his national address to the nation, said that uh, Venezuelan income last year was 1% of the income we had in 2018. Nice. Just to give you an idea of how bad the economic impact of the sanction is. So the situation is complicated, it's very uh, the ones that are suffering the most are the ordinary Venezuelans, uh, the people in the street. Uh, but I'm, I have the impression, especially since 2018, when Maduro took economic decisions, uh, that the economy is moving better. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic about the 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 perspective of Venezuelan economy, uh, at least for the for this year and the, and the next years. Uh, because somehow the sanctions affect you, but I mean, there's a positive side of sanctions that force you to find different ways of doing things. And I believe that we have been learning to do that. And, and, and I'm optimistic, maybe, maybe that's that uh, um, being too optimistic in situations like this, but but the situation is that. So so economically talking, uh, we are in very bad shape still. Uh, politically talking, uh, uh, as you say, the the Guaido experiment promoted by Washington uh, uh, is a failure, and 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 Guaido is uh, on the ground, basically in terms of popularity. Uh, he never had too much popularity, but anyway, not even the, the, the mainstream media is supporting him lately. So, so in political terms, the the economics, the, the situation of Venezuela is way more. Uh, I mean, is uh, is good for the government. It's good for Chavismo. Uh, especially after the, the December parliamentary elections that basically gave Chavismo uh, the control of, over the National Assembly. So 
that's basically the, the, the situation uh, for Venezuela. We are going to have a regional elections, elections for governors by the end of this year. And we are talking about uh, combining these elections with elections for majors that were supposed to happen next year. So for sure, we're gonna have uh, elections for majors and governors by the end of this year. And that put the opposition in a very bad situation because just a few weeks ago, they were inviting people not to vote. And now they are, some of them are doing uh, things in order to mobilize their base to participate in, in the elections for governors and mayors. So is their contradictions only make them worse. I mean, I, I mean, put them in a worse situation. Uh, so that's basically the, uh, like, like a fast approach to the economic and political situation of Venezuela at this moment. Chavismo strengthen economically talking uh, 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 optimistic, but in the middle of one of the worst economic crises in Venezuelan history due to the sanctions and the blockade. And, 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 and I, I think that that will answer briefly uh, your question, I hope. Yeah. I, I've definitely noticed the PSUV has secured victories, um, especially after, again, the opposition boycotted an election because they knew they couldn't win it, which is their typical pattern. You know, they do this every time they see a, a hopeless battle. They kind of just cop out and say, oh, we couldn't get into office afterwards for some reason. Um, economically speaking, though, I do. Yeah, I understand that uh, there are obviously new approaches have to be tried out, you know, like Iran or North Korea or Cuba, obviously, has all kind of faced a similar situation where they had to um, basically kickstart an internal economy. And I've seen over the last couple of years, say Maduro um, giving more power to the communes and things like that. What economically has kind of changed in uh Venezuela to adapt to the sanctions. In terms of the commune, you mean? Or in general? It, uh, both, I guess. Uh, you could start with the communes and then just in general. I mean, what yes. are some steps the Maduro government's okay. taking? Yes, yes, yes. Basically, I mean, uh, when I tell you that the positive aspects of the, of the I mean, the sanctions have between quotation positive. Uh, you know, aspects is when I tell you that uh, I'm thinking about the Venezuelan government reaching agreements with Iran uh, to to help uh, to allow the help of Iran in changing the the technological uh, infrastructure that supports uh, Venezuelan refining capabilities. I mean, Venezuela, Venezuela, uh, disregarding what you might hear uh, among some, even some leftist people, ecologists and people like that, green people, uh, did not decide uh, itself to become an oil country. It was imposed to us by the gringos uh, in the early 20th century. So that changed completely the Venezuelan economical landscape that was very agricultural. So, um, 
all the, the, the industrial refining capabilities that we have in Venezuela that are not, that is not a small, uh, was based in US technology. And since 2014 or 2013, the sanctions made uh, every day more difficult to buy parts, to sign agreements with contractors and providers. And we reached the collapse in 2019 and that's cause uh, the gasoline uh, uh, problems that we are still facing today. But in, in the middle of that crisis, Venezuela decided to, to make an agreement with Iran and the Iranian uh, uh, oil people are helping Venezuela to, to reveal and adapt its technology to the one uh, is being used in Iran. So that's something that do not happen from one day to another. It's something that, is, uh, in, my, in my opinion, is going to take years. But we are working on that, and we are being forced to do it fast because uh, 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 most of the refineries collapsed last year, and they have been slowly but steady being recovered. Uh, when I tell you that, I also think about some metro trains being repaired by Venezuelan workers and not by the traditional European corporations that before the sanctions uh, uh, were hard to do that work. Uh, equipment, medical equipment uh, now being restored by uh, workers or, or government new uh, agencies that deals with repairing and fixing uh, medical equipment and things like that. Uh, you know, I mean, there are several examples of, uh, of the sanctions uh, changing the way we, are, we were used to do things in Venezuela. And I believe that that's positive because that will put some, give us more independence uh, in the future. Now, uh, when you talk about communes, the situation is a little bit, uh, more complex uh, because the communes in Venezuela, uh, first I have to tell you that the communes are like, a, like people organized in certain territory to produce something. That's basically what we understand uh, about communes, uh, I mean, uh, about communal production. Uh, communes is like the connection of several of those entities in a particular uh, space, area. Uh, right. So, so the, the communes uh, has been heavily affected by the economic situation uh, from one side, because they traditionally receive a lot of attention and support from the government that right now do not have the money to help the communes with uh, technical assistance, with uh, machinery, with resources, with things like that. So, uh, but from the other side, the sanctions somehow force uh, the communes uh, to produce more, you know, because uh, some of the things that we previously imported right now, we are uh, being somehow Force between quotation uh, to make those things here at home. 
So the for the communes, in my perspective, uh, uh, the, the sanctions also open a window of opportunity uh, because of what I just told you. So, so, but if you ask me my opinion on the, the current situation of, you know, communes working in the agricultural field, uh, they have been heavily affected by, but the, the strong ones, the ones that really had the strength to survive without the, you know, being always uh, helped by the government. And I believe that those are the ones that needs to be, uh, replicated and you know promoted uh, are the ones that are, has been enduring the economic situation the u.s sanctions and they are doing fine actually i was thinking visiting one of those communes el maizal that is coming to caracas tomorrow in the morning and they are going to have like a public they do that every weekend uh, and they are going to have like a public selling of the things that they produce. The Maxal is one of the most important communities that we have in Venezuela. They are located in Lara State. Yes. Right, cool. Um, well, okay. So next, I kind of want to dive into uh, a myth here, a couple myths here. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. There's two big ones, I guess. Uh, there's the idea that somehow Venezuela, with its opposition journalism, as you said, a mainstream media that reports on like Guaido and things like that, uh, the idea that Venezuela is one authoritarian and two, the idea that Venezuela is somehow communist or like fully socialized economy or something like that. I guess we'll start with um, I start with number two. Would you like to explain what sectors of the of the Venezuelan economy are actually nationalized and how much of this is like private companies, like you said, European companies working on the metro and things like that? How many how much of the economy, yeah. you know? is privatized yes, yes. Yes, uh, that's a good question i mean uh president chavez is the one that led the bolivarian revolution since he took office in 1999 and he uh he initially did not call himself uh, or call the bolivarian revolution socialist revolution he waited like like three or four years to do that and that's not i believe that that's not good or bad i mean actually even Cuba, I mean, Fidel did something similar. Right. He waited a little bit. Uh, uh, so, uh, but uh, the decisions taken by President Chavez are not the same that, that for example, Fidel, Fidel took in Cuba. Fidel took more radical uh, economic and constitutional decisions in order to make Cuba a socialist country, a, 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 a country uh, moving towards communism. Uh, President Chavez uh, did not the same, but he took a very drastic uh, progressive or socialist measure uh, that you can enumerate. I mean, I can tell you that the most important ones from my perspective are the ones related to land reform, for example. He did an aggressive land reform in the, especially between 2004 and 2010. Uh, uh, and, and that brings the space for all those communal, you know, experiments that I uh, referred to you before, and many other initiatives. Uh, President Chavez nationalized it during the 80s, the late 80s in Venezuela, the neoliberal trend uh, 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 made 
make a software uh, 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 privatization uh, wave. Uh, and mostly everything that belonged to the state during uh, that decade was privatized. Uh, during Chavez government, uh, the opposite happened. Chavez decided to nationalize most of the private biggest corporations that we had in Venezuela, for example, telecommunications, which uh, the company name is Cantebe. So that company was in the hands of uh, Verizon and other big US corporations and Chavez nationalized it. I mean, it brings it back to the public space. Uh, Chavez nationalized several banks, like half of the Venezuelan banking system was nationalized by Chavez for different reasons, not all the time because he wanted to follow the traditional, uh, you know, communist recipe of national, nationalizing the banking system or things like that. But at the end of the day, he and we have actually right now, like 50%, I believe, uh, that's the figure uh, of the banking system in hands of the of the public sector of the state. Uh, telecommunications, as I told you, uh, uh, the the monopoly. I mean, the biggest companies can't and is in public hands still. Uh, but we have private corporations that provide services also, but they most of the time do business uh, or make agreements with Cantebe. Uh So we have a uh, like 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 like. Uh, mixed economy with a heavy participation of the state that in recent months due to the sanctions and that have brought uh, a big debate among uh, left uh, people here in Venezuela, uh, the government of Maduro has been, in my opinion, forced to make agreements with private organizations in order to keep the economy alive. So, so that's why people in the Communist Party called Maduro a neoliberal or whatever you can hear in the, those statement, statements from the Venezuelan Communist Party. And I believe that they are committing a mistake. They are exaggerating the situation. They are, they are not analyzing that sometimes government, especially socialist government like ours, have to uh, take tactical uh, decisions in order to face the challenges of the current times. So that's what I believe President Maduro is doing. But, you know, maybe I know if you ask another guy from the Communist Party of Venezuela, he will tell you that I'm crazy. But that's part of the debate anyways. Uh, and and yeah. the reality is that President Maduro is reaching some agreements with the private sector. Yes, tell me. Yeah, I, I, I understand, you know, it's, it's like Iran, you know, it, this is a country under heavy sanctions where you have to do business where you can find it. Yeah, you know, um, Venezuela, geopolitically, is in a weird situation. You guys started refining gold in Turkey, obviously, which is strange mm. for NATO because that's a NATO ally while you're under sanctions from Washington, you know. So it, it, it's you take help where you can find it. You guys um, took the Russian vaccine for covid uh yes. you you know you obviously have done more business with china in the past few years as the u.s sanctions have cracked down and like you said iran is helping with the oil production and things like that so mm -hmm. I, um my other point was uh again 
the idea that Venezuela is somehow uh, some autocratic, you know, what a, a what an American liberal would call a Stalinist state, I suppose, you know, whatever yeah, you think that's that an is. That's stupid argument. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you want to explain yeah, how so how much voice the opposition actually has and how free the press is and everything in Venezuela? Yes, I mean, they, they do, they call every day uh, my rudo a dictator, and you can hear them saying it in Venezuelan radio or in Venezuelan TV or in social media, uh, and they keep doing it, and they don't find it contradictory, but I don't know. I mean, I mean what I'm trying to tell you is that the Venezuelan opposition itself is a demonstration of how uh, the opposite of what mainstream media says about Venezuela, uh, Venezuela is. I mean, uh, you have Guaido dancing in the street while many of us <laughs> want him to be behind bars. But the Venezuelan government has been saying that, you know, the justice time and the political crimes sometimes are not aligned and that you have to wait and, and you know the government try to explain the situation in different ways but anyway i mean what i'm trying to tell you is that uh if venezuela is like uh, like uh authoritarian regime uh, uh, why though uh should be behind bars i mean right. we have been behind bars right. for, for a long time we have opposition always doing business in Venezuela uh, and, and calling for U.S. Uh, military intervention and supporting the crazy uh, project of Guaido, which is unconstitutional, is illegal under Venezuelan law and under international law, but they keep supporting it. And I mean, and they are still there and no one says anything. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a humongous exaggeration saying that Venezuela is an authoritarian regime. I believe that the U.S. is 10 or 100 times worse than Venezuela. I'm not saying that we are perfect, but uh, here I mean, it's, it's a humongous exaggeration. Guaido would never be on a ballot here. That's, of course, he would yeah. be jail or, or death. Right, yeah. He would never be on a ballot. He would be an obscure candidate that they made fun of on the mainstream news. You know, that would never happen here. Um, I think that's one thing that people don't realize, even as they point him out, is like, this guy's free to roam around and just say that he's the president, try to climb fences, do whatever he wants, you know? And he makes these big shows of everything. And I, I think that he's not even on house arrest like uh lopez was leopoldo lopez no. you know was put on house arrest after his bid but you know yeah. guido's not even on house arrest and he's out to do these publicity stunts and these concerts sponsored by richard branson and stuff like that and i think that mm -hmm. the fact that he's there you know well like say the liberals are crying about navalny in russia you know yes. meanwhile guido is free to move back and forth between Colombia and Venezuela. He comes to Venezuela and he's, yeah, like you said, he's out dancing in the street. He's out in public, you know, yes. just the fact that he acts in this manner should disprove any ideas that this is some type of like authoritarian. But anyways, when I, but you have to be careful also. I mean, when, when saying that, I, I'm not, I'm, even even if we put Guaido in jail, that we should have put him a long time ago, 
that do, do not prove that Venezuela is an authoritarian regime. You know no. what I'm trying to tell you? Yeah, I yeah, believe exactly. that, that, that Harry Guaido dancing in the street is a, the best example. At the but very even least, he should be on house arrest. Exactly. Even if we put him in behind bars, that doesn't mean that Venezuela is an authoritarian government. As I will, as I personally believe, putting Navalny, which is a a a a, a cheap imitation of Guaido, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, happens. I mean, means for the Russians. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't complain about the Russians putting that crazy fascist in jail. It's a, it's a really damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. You know, it, either way, you look, uh, if Guaido is running around, the U.S. can still pretend he's legitimate. But if you put him on house arrest, the U.S. can say, oh, look, they're locking up the opposition. You yes, know, yes. It, either way, you're basically screwed and you're stuck with yes, whatever Washington yes, yes. wants. You can do whatever you want and they will invent anything or right. create a new way to call you the dictator or a authoritarian or whatever. I mean, Guaido was fully willing to false flag his own supporters last year or two years ago. You know, he did he did it multiple times and he was willing to rip yes. off his own like backers and everything. So he's just a scam artist. And the fact that he's not on house arrest is kind of a slap in the face because he should be. He's broken multiple laws. I mean, yes. if I climbed over the fence at Congress, you know how much trouble I'd be in? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Doesn't matter if I had a suit and backing from another country, I'd be yes. in prison. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's something to really remember is the fact that he's not in prison or on house arrest is like proof itself that Venezuela, it, it, they, Maduro clearly considers, uh, you know, the optics in the West. And obviously he knows that jailing Guaido or even putting him on house arrest will look better for the United States. Than mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe that that's part of the President Maduro's calculation for not having that crazy guy in jail. Even would, though yeah. many of us at Chavista <laughs> dream of on having him in jail. But anyway, it not because of his here. significance, it... but because of the damage he has caused to Venezuelan assets abroad. Especially it... because of that. I mean, all the refineries that we have uh, from people right. in the U.S., all the bank accounts, the gold that was seized by the Bank of England. I mean, we're talking about approximately between 40 and $60 billion. That's a lot of money. Yeah, for Venezuela. Yeah, yeah. For the Venezuelan economy, that would be a shot in the arm right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's the thing. Like, I, I understand, again, like going to partners like Turkey, and finding like deals with Iran and China and Ru- yes. even Russia for the vaccine. These are necessary, you know, steps to take when you're under such heavy pressure from the United States. Yes, uh, but, but even without the sanctions, I mean, Venezuela has since Chavez time uh, a promoter in the international, you know, uh, debate of what is called multilateralism. I mean, you're the right. idea of not having a, a war run by the U.S. or the U.S. and Europe. So Venezuela, since Chavez took office, initiated a deep approach on strengthening relations with China, with Russia, with India, with Turkey, with the Caribbean, with different you know, areas in the world in order to reach that you know, foreign policy. 
Actually, so it's, well, not, it, it's not new. I mean, that relation that we have with Turkey, with Bosnia, and actually right. that yeah. relation with those countries is the one that have keep us afloat during the COVID crisis. You know, uh, it, so 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 it, it is because of China, Russia, Cuba, uh, even Turkey that that we and of course Iran that we have you know uh, successfully uh, navigate the COVID nineteen pandemic. Yeah, you guys are basically uh, you basically are part of a, the new non aligned movement. You know, it, yes. the non aligned yes. states. So these are the states that operate freely. And do what is best for their own interests. You know, you guys act even, almost even like though the U.S. Even though the U.S. and Europe, Europe tried to demolish the non-aligned movement, but even I mean, right. disregarding the attacks from the U.S. and Europe, that movement is still there. And Venezuela is a founding member of that movement that was created, I believe, that in the seventies or something like that. Yeah, I, it was Venezuela, Cuba, uh, you know, Yugoslavia, and those countries that India. founded the non-aligned movement. Yeah. This is a, it, it, it's an important movement because it, it is a, you know, especially with China now, it's a movement that acknowledges there are more than one pole of power in the world. There's one more, there's more than one global economy. You know, there's two poles of this global economy, basically. It's not that there's more than one, but there are two poles in it. Yes. And Venezuela is acknowledging that you can operate between both of those. Iran does the same thing. Yes. But I understand your 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 concerns about Turkey or Iran. I mean, or even China. I mean, some people here from the left consider. I have a lot of friends from the left. I consider that oh, I don't China, have concerns uh, about that, but many people do. I, I I don't have those problems. I believe that China is is I mean it's an example of, of the country that have no. I think incredible advances. But for example, in Turkey also. I mean. In Turkey, I mean, there's a lot of people that call uh, Erdogan a, a dictator, and, and there are a, a few signs that that might be true. But you know, uh, that thing is one. I mean, that's one thing, and the other thing is, you know, having relations between countries that have, you know, mm, I'll say Erdogan's incidents, you know, in other areas. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'll say Erdogan's a dictator, but I don't care when he angers like NATO or the EU. You know what I? I don't care. Yes. I don't care. Yes, of course. It, I, exactly. It, when he's pissing off Berlin or Brussels or Washington, I I don't care. Uh, I that and when flight, people criticize Iran because they are not communists or socialists, I mean that's their problem. I mean, but we at least I mean, uh, me as a Venezuelan, I I, I consider Iran like a, a big ally because of their anti-imperialist stance. You know. I don't care if they don't like communists or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? You know, the funny thing is the communists control like a territory in Turkey. They control a whole province. So they have more know. they have more power right. than most opposition parties in Turkey. Yeah. They control a whole know, province. I know that the is. communist party is important, but I do you know, know that they control several areas. Yeah, they control That's a whole nice. province at this point. So yeah, the, the communist party is actually one of the most successful opposition parties in Turkey honestly that's nice. That's nice. yeah and so um nice. what i guess what has you know the nationalization of major industries since chavez and under Maduro done to advance um lives obviously like 
the clap boxes, you know, food subsidies, um, price controls, education, and things like that. What have the economic reforms of the PSUV really done? You know, how have they redistributed the nation's wealth? Wow. Right now, it's very complicated to talk about that, even for a Venezuelan like me, because we're in the middle of this crisis. And a lot of people in Venezuela have forget about all the achievements we reach, especially during Chavez time. Uh, so, so that's a, a very important question because some people only uh, put the the lupa, uh, the, the augmented uh, augmented lens lens on the current situation. And they forget about the incredible economic boom that we experienced during the first decade of, of the 21st century. So I, I really that is important to highlight that. Uh, I mean, during the first 12 years of Chavez government, uh, of course, you, you can associate that boom with the price of oil, but it, it is not necessary that like that exclusively. I mean, Venezuela, Venezuela experienced a boom in economy, in agricultural production, in, in social programs for the people. We create, Chavez created, one of the most successful programs that Chavez created was the Mission Robinson. I mean, provi uh, providing, uh, I mean, getting uh, millions of Venezuela and out of illiteracy with a program um, built with the help of Cuba. You know, but fighting uh, illiteracy. Uh, the other incredible program that Chavez created was Mission Barrialín, for providing free healthcare for millions of Venezuela that traditionally did not have access to healthcare. Even though allegedly uh, during the time before Chavez, uh, there was public healthcare system in Venezuela, but that was a lie. So, uh, I mean, Everything actually that barrio uh, adentro infrastructure is the one that has been very key also uh, in the fight of Venezuela against COVID 19. Uh, uh, what else I can tell you? The mission, how the housing mission that Chavez created, we have we, we achieved, I believe that we are already uh, uh, in the I forgot, I'm not sure if we are talking about 3 million houses or 4 million houses. I don't know why, but I'm, I'm right now I'm confused. But let's say that uh, uh, until last year, uh, uh, Venezuela built 4 million houses for Venezuelans that wow. did not have uh, access to houses. Uh, you know, uh, and the and the idea is that to keep that program growing. I believe that the, the goal is having six or seven million houses built by the year 2025 or something like that. That's so, so those are the programs, the things that uh, has been. I mean, the Venezuelan population has been uh, uh, enjoying since the Bolivarian revolutions took power, but of course, all of that has been, you know, uh, put in a vacuum because of the sanctions. And a lot of people right now forget about those achievements, you know? They don't put them in the right place that they should be. Uh, 
because the economic situation is terrible. Uh, right. But that's the result of the sanctions and maybe also mismanagement or corruption that I don't believe that corruption is a problem exclusively of Venezuela. I lived in the U.S. for a long time and I know how corruption is embedded <laughs> all over the U.S. Uh, system from, 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 from city councils no. to the Congress. So, 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 so I'm not saying that corruption is okay. What I'm saying is that uh, uh, that's part of the problem and we have to acknowledge it. And, and, and President Maduro acknowledged that. The problem is when you have corruption and you cover it. And I believe that President Maduro has been very aggressive in attacking corruption. You don't putting un- people behind bars because of corruption scandals. You know what I mean? Yeah, you don't understand. We don't have corruption. We just have lobbying and campaign donations. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we don't have any yes, corruption. Yes, but you have more. I mean, you have influence. I mean, you in the you have. I mean, <laughs> I I've seen as a diplomat, I had to you know deal with you know those spaces of the the formal <laughs> power structure of the U.S. You know, going to yeah. meet with aldermans, going to meeting with governors. You know, uh, as a diplomat, that's part of your work. And you see stuff that even some people in the U.S. don't see. I mean, uh, but you know that those things exist. You know, that the traffic of influence, the, 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 the pain of vacations oh, yeah. for politicians, the buying of houses for their relatives. I mean, those things are everywhere in the U.S. But no one talks about that. I mean, they say that, that's okay. I mean, that's, I mean, I can put one of two bad guys from time to time in jail for that, but 90% of the bureaucracy in the U.S. do that. I, I won't say, like, Trump is right, but people are are right that, like, Hunter Biden had a position in Ukraine that he was paid, like, $50,000 yes. a month for to sit on a Ukraine that's, that's, gas that's, board. That's, that's, that's corruption, man. <laughs> yeah, actually, you I don't mean, see that. I mean, you, you, can, you can be a Democrat and you might be jumping of happiness because Trump is not there, but you have to acknowledge that uh, uh, Hunter Biden and his father somehow are the blame for something that is called, uh, how, how that is called, um, there's a name for that. I mean, I forgot Nepotism. the name. Exactly. Yeah, they're the family. Yeah, they're the sons. Mm-hmm. The sons mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Biden were put in positions of power. Yes. It, yeah. Hunter did not deserve a job overseeing all Ukrainian gas production, obviously. Of course not. I think Jake had a follow-up question. Jake? Yes. Hi. Uh, yeah, Jesus. So I was going to ask you about the, the nationalization of the resources and infrastructure there, uh, but you already answered that. So I was just going to ask, obviously, uh, most Americans are pretty ignorant when it comes to uh, the geopolitics of South America, Central Latin America. And, you know, the intervention of the US government in these countries uh, by the CIA and whatnot goes back over half a century to intervening uh, when there's an attempt at, you know, uh, nationalizing resources so and and you've you know made clear you know the reality of that but and then now that uh we just brought up trump i was wondering whether from your point of view is there a substantive difference between 
kind of a neo, what you expect to be a neoliberal Biden uh, administration uh, in terms of their attitude towards Venezuela. Is there, do you think there will be a significant difference between that and what say Pompeo and Trump were doing? Like from your point of view, is there any palpable difference between uh, a, a, a neoconservative treatment and a neoliberal treatment? I really, I mean, I know that there's a lot of people, liberals here in the US and even here in Venezuela, that they truly dream on that and they bet on that. But if you ask me, my personal opinion is that Republicans and Democrats are the same. Uh, and I actually worry more about the Democrats because they try to portray themselves like the good cops. You know, the Republicans are the bad cops and the, and the Democrats are the good cops and they play that game in foreign policy, especially towards Latin America. I believe that, uh, that around the world, but, but now that you are mentioning Latin America, uh, uh, it's worse in the case of Latin America. I mean, uh, that approach is, Worse, so I mean that imperialistic approach from the democratic governments towards Latin America uh, is terrible. I mean, Obama administration was terrible. The only positive thing that he did, like a few days before leaving office, was to uh, normalize relations with Cuba. Cuba, yeah. Uh, yes. So, so, so that's the only positive things, and I can na name you like twenty negative. Uh, you know, decisions taken by Obama administration. So I, I don't have, uh, I have zero expectations of on Biden. Uh, I, I, we in Orinoco Tribune, we try to monitor uh, all U.S. politics, especially towards Venezuela, and 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 not all the statements that you can see in recent days are just replications of of uh, of the same statement made by that by by Trump's you know bureaucrats. So I'm not optimistic. Actually, we posted yesterday something about the new uh, Secretary of the State, I forgot his name, uh, that participated in a in a virtual summit uh, in the United Nations Council, uh, Human Rights Council, and and he he basically repeated that the threat for uh, that. That, it, that the U.S. do not want Cuba, Venezuela, Iran in that council, and that the U.S. wants to join that council to bring the understanding of democracy and human rights to the to Geneva to to the United Nations back. Right. That's crazy. That's ironic. That's sad. Uh, but it's a, I, I, we posted that, and, and one of our readers uh, posted in social media something like. This guy, uh, the new Secretary of State, is the same Pompeo, but skinny. <laughs> so it's the same thing. I mean, it's like, and today I was reading the statement that posted uh, one of the, uh, the other Secretary of State for, um, for, the, for Latin America, for the Western Hemisphere. Uh, replicating exactly the same statement that the former undersecretary of state under Trump had on Venezuela, talking about interim government, talking about Guaido, and you say, "Wow, these guys do not learn anything." It's like having like a like a, I don't know how to say it. It's it's like 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 a, 
bureaucracy of people working for the US government, repeating the same speech, the same uh, talking points that are being uh, given to them by lobbies, right? By by the corporations. I don't know. But so is that like, so? Is that what this is? A, I mean, to you, is that what this is about? Then is is this purely a matter of being adversarial against Latin America countries who try to develop a a alternative energy system uh, based on nationalization, and also a lot of Latin American countries are setting up really good case models for alternative energy, renewable energy. And it, do, yeah. you think, do you think this is the US government uh, kind of hearkening back to the Vietnam days of not wanting the world to see an alternative model for how, how to do things? Completely, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's nothing pointing at the US trying to really understand, I mean, the, the whole behavior of the U.S. in the world is the behavior of a bully, uh, uh, and, 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 and you can see it everywhere. But most, uh, you can see it the most in Latin America. Uh, I believe that because uh, the elite in the U.S. believes that uh, Latin America belongs to the U.S. So they think that they can do whatever they want with Latin America, and they don't understand that everything that they do, that they have been doing for the last uh, uh, century has been run and has created poverty in our countries. And, and that directly affects the US because uh, all the masses of migrants that goes from Latin America to the US it's not because the Chavista or Maduro government is pushing them, as you can hear from some right-wingers, uh, towards the border, uh, towards the, the border with Mexico. Uh, I mean, and that's a result of decades, generations after generations of abuses, of, of uh, economic approach that only creates poverty. But people, yeah, uh, especially the elites in the was understand that and that's sad because There's... that's the reality if you, if, even i mean in, if, if the u.s had, had uh, a minimum of uh, a conscious political elite that that really understand the world and want to change it uh, the approach should be different but that doesn't happen and i believe that it won't happen with, with biden's administration Sadly, I, when, but whenever I have a sign that, I mean, I, I'm in front of a sign that maybe the U.S. is going to change its approach towards Venezuela, for example, and lift the sanctions, even though I believe that that won't happen, uh, I try to push towards that direction, not because I love the U.S., but because I believe that that's not the way I mean, that, there's nothing positive out of that approach in, in international relations. No, so, I don't I, know. I, actually, I want to ask you about that. Um, you know, speaking of like uh, the, 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 the race for president here and how it doesn't represent most of us, you know, how it doesn't represent a good 45 to 50 percent of the population, depending on the election. 
you know, a good mm-hmm. amount of people don't vote at all, obviously. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I want to say, uh, you know, we got about 10 minutes here. What was your take on, um, you know, obviously the U.S. still enforces the Monroe Doctrine to an mm-hmm. insane extent. You know, we still think Latin America is basically our property. What did you think as, uh, and I'll say this, you're a Marxist in Venezuela. You know, what did you think of the mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders run in the United States? I believe that that's a typical trap within the Democratic Party that tries to have some liberals, maybe some progressive people in the U.S. thinking that the Democratic Party is going to be changed or something. Do you think they basically just entertained him for this race? Yes, yes, it's a trap. And it's a well-designed trap. I, I, I believe that, that the existence of Bernie Sanders and the squad and all those allegedly progressive politicians within the Democratic Party uh, are, are, are designed to be rare. I mean, they are not uh, there because of, uh, uh, because of uh, you know, it's not aleatory. I mean, there's a decision to have them there because that way they keep a, a progressive and liberal base Within the Democratic Party, in, in, yeah. in that they forbid, they forbid the creation of uh, of a new political movement or forces within the U.S. That I believe that there is a lot of people that might be when they realize that that trap is there, they might be you know deciding to jump to a new political project. I believe that that is absolutely necessary. I do think there's something to say about like the Democrats pouring like millions of dollars into like uh, Ilhan Omar's opponent and things like that. Clearly they are afraid of people who do have principles, you know. Um, I'm not a huge fan of AOC. I think she's kind of turned. But I do think like Ilhan Omar has been like a real outspoken, uh, especially with her criticism of Israel, you know. Yeah, and yeah. there's the Democratic Party has tried to squash like candidates like those or uh, incumbents like those. You know, mm-hmm. there are certain people they're afraid of. But yeah, for the most part, um, Sanders telling his supporters to stay home during COVID while Biden told his like 99 year old supporters to go out and die, basically. You know, I think that's a, a, a strategic mistake. I think uh, Sanders made quite a few mistakes if he was really trying to be the opposition candidate. But um, I, I guess as we're kind of coming up on the end here, you know, uh, you know, I stated a bit uh, earlier, you are a Marxist at the end of the day, right? So what are some... Um, <laughs> what are some... It's not, it's not easy. <laughs> yeah, trust me. I'm in the United States, man. I know. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, what are some of the, the economic steps you would like to see Venezuela take in the future that you think could help it out? I believe that the, the, the decision that, that President Maduro has been taking in recent weeks or months, especially after the victory of in the National Assembly towards the communal movement, trying to strengthen the communal movement, is the key 
for everything. I, I believe that the key of the crown of the Bolivarian Revolution is the communal movement. And in- well, it, I mean, Can the, I just the, say something real quick? That was one of Chavez's yeah. main points before he left off, before he, well, before yes. he passed away. One of Chavez's main Absolutely. points was hand more power over to the communes, correct? Correct. Correct. And, and President Maduro in recent weeks has proposed to the National Assembly, he actually delivered two draft uh, bills, projects uh, to the National Assembly to create the, the communal parliament, which is an important key in the infrastructure of what we socialists call uh, the communal uh, state. And also he proposed the deal for the communal cities. So those two entities, if they are created and, and the right tools are provided to strengthen the communal movement that has been heavily affected by the economic situation. Uh, but if those fields are approved, properly approved, taking into consideration all the recommendations from the people in the town, I believe that that's going to be uh, a big step forward towards what I believe uh, is at the end of the day, the nature of any communist uh, process, which is given the means of production to the people uh, uh, and allowing them to organize themselves, to live in harmony and to produce and to create wealth without, uh, destroying everything around them like the capitalist system does. So that might be my, my take on your question. Trying to be very because of the time. Yeah, thank you. And again, I just, I don't know. There's been a lot of information. So thank you for all of it. Um, we Again, we were joined by Jesus Rodriguez Espinoza. He is the editor-in-chief of Orinoco Tribune and the founder of Orinoco Tribune. He was also the former consul general to uh, from Venezuela to the United States. He was based out of Chicago. And again, thank you, Jesus, for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. All right, My thank pleasure. you. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to the interview. This is, again, The Left is Dead with me, Jim Carrey, and your other guy, uh, Jake Anderson. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for that glowing uh, yeah, reintroduction I there. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so what did you think about, uh, could you, do you think you could summarize for people kind of the, the crux of what Jesus you know, said during at least the first part of that? I think that uh, the biggest thing to realize is that, uh, one, Venezuela is not some authoritarian Marxist state economically or politically. You know, this is not, uh, I suppose what people would say, like, what is Kim Jong-un killing, like, opposition journalists or whatever? No, I don't think that happens. 
But either way, I think the biggest thing to remember is Venezuela is not some authoritarian, Stalinist, Marxist, whatever state in the way that the U.S. thinks, both economically and politically. And I think at the same time, another important thing to take from the interview is the United States still enforces what is basically the Monroe Doctrine on Latin America. And the United States thinks Latin America is basically its property, you know, which is, again, as I said in the intro, land reform and things like that are dangerous to the United States because the United States literally does regard Latin America as its property. So I, I, I think that's my main takeaways from the interview. And I think, I don't know, what did you learn, Jake? Well, I thought it was I thought it was interesting that he said there's basically no difference between a Democrat and Republican in office, which is, a, you know, something that you hear a lot in American media. And a lot of times there's pushback on that. But I think when you apply it towards real foreign policy, geopolitical affairs, uh, I, I think it has a lot more credence in that kind of context. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, uh, you know, under Biden, the sanctions haven't been lifted, whether it's on Venezuela, Cuba, or Iran. You know, the sanctions have not been lifted that were put in place by the Trump administration. That's really something to consider. You know what I mean? And, and you know, and so I, I don't know if I, I caught him talking about like what, or towards the end, he was talking about like what kind of things he expects to see in the near future? Like, is there a, a solid game plan on how Venezuela can kind of uh, avoid the kind of trickier economic issues that sort of, you know, make it possible for, for right-wing movements to reseize control or like what, you know, cause Bolivia seems to, you know, the, the socialist uh, Bolivian movement seems to have a lot of momentum right now um you know from what he said and your knowledge of the situation does it seem like venezuela uh has has as good of a chance of trying to you know create a, a more you know a, a, as proud of a national movement around that kind of working class movement yeah i think so i mean we talked in the interview about um iran Turkey, China, Russia, and a lot of the other countries involved in basically like the, what we called in the interview the non-aligned movement, you know, as much as that exists to it today. And then the idea of the unipolar world and the idea of a multipolar world, you know, where China and Russia are seen as world powers, mainly China. But I think that as you see these other poles of power grow, in the world, you'll see less dependence on the United States. Um, again, I think Venezuela is at a point where they're figuring out their domestic economy in a way that Iran or North Korea or Cuba or even Vietnam has. They're still trying to adapt their domestic economy to this brutal sanctions regime, you know, which takes time. In and, uh, Iran, it took generations, you know, I think it, that's, but that is something they're working towards, which I think is a, a crucial part of resisting U.S. economic imperialism. Right. And, 
and it's harder to it's hard to see you know five years down the road much much less 20 but but the the role and primacy uh of oil uh is is gradually decreasing yeah. in time and it's it's in 50 years from now it's going to be all but a different uh, global paradigm and so it's going to be interesting to see whether some of these Latin American countries that have invested more in renewable energy uh, will have more more leverage at that time when everything is not you know so based on uh, energy and again though even as Jesus said you know the idea of like oil being an economic like staple was sort of foisted upon Venezuela. You know, it's not where they choose to be. Sure. You know, I, I just think it's important to remember that it's not, as far as any socialist state, you know, people obviously criticize me over, you know, support of China or whatever. Um, but I think any socialist state, especially in this, like, neoliberal free trade world has to learn how to adapt you know Mm -hmm. i don't i don't blame anyone for adapting because this shit sucks but i'm sorry i interrupted (laughs) no it's okay man i'm just rolling with it i don't know exactly uh you know it you know i mostly wanted to listen there i i don't really feel like I know enough about Venezuela to make, you know, value judgments about it. But uh, I, I do think uh, anyone listening who feels the need to make value judgments in a vacuum probably needs to read more uh, about the history of our involvement in that region, because it's, you know, this has been going on forever. And you know that the tree, especially you know, given the rhetoric that came after 2016 of the kind of neoliberal line of logic of oh my God, the Russians interfered in our elections, right. they interfered in our democracy. Well, look, we've been doing that times a thousand in 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 this region of the world, and uh, yeah. it. I imagine it's very frustrating uh, to even talk about it because. So many Americans just simply do not understand the extent to which our economic imperialism has just completely uh, irradiated uh, the autonomy of some of these countries. Well, I mean, Jesus and I joked a bit about uh, Juan Guaido, the opposition leader, during our interview. But the fact that Juan Guaido is still running around Venezuela, like I said in the interview proves that this is not some type of authoritarian regime. You know what I mean? And no matter what the United States depicts these countries as, whether it be Venezuela, Cuba, um, Nicaragua, uh, any of these countries where the left kind of takes power, you know, I mean, shit, the Sandinistas are back in power. You know, like, these are... Uh, dangerous things to the United States who sees like, like I said, they see Latin America as their backyard, their property, whatever you want to call it. And I think that uh, Venezuela continuing to resist under immense pressure from both a Republican and a Democrat 
shows that there are ways for uh, countries to exist outside the U.S. dominated model. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And I think it's important. I think it's important to realize that countries, the, the end of history is over, you know? The I, end of history is over. Unpackage that. Well, uh, the idea that the, the battle between communism and capitalism was won. The right. 90, The 90s philosophy that capitalism had won and capitalism was to consume all, and all would be under the umbrella. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. We're, we're now more in this phase where there is, a, a, in many ways, a synergistic uh, uh, activity where you have uh, a free market capitalist system, but then uh, a variety of governments around the world that are using uh, socialism for, for various things. And I, I, I think... Anyone arguing that the future of the world is going to be run by either side exclusively to me is unrealistic. Like the the future is going to be a hybridized system of capitalism and socialism. It'll be multipolar. You know, that's one thing. Geopolitically speaking, it'll be multipolar. But yeah, I think it's important to remember that like we aren't the empire we thought we were anymore, you know. We're um, not, uh, we're not, uh, well, economically speaking, we're not the world dominating power, whether it be Africa or like Southeast Asia or whatever, we're not the dominant power anymore. Even Australia and the EU have given major contracts to Chinese corporations, you know, we're not number one. You mean America isn't the best? Uh, sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah sorry it's not but either way i don't know we'll wrap it up here i guess uh this has been an interesting argument at the front of the episode an interesting reflection at the end so we'll let it go here but uh yeah again thank you for joining us uh jesus you know we definitely appreciated learning more about venezuela and we have some more insanity coming up with Martin in the next yeah. week. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll be having a, a re, we'll be revisiting our QAnon friend uh, yep. and uh, hearing, you know, where, where the kind of central intellectual pivot of QAnon will oh. be. And then uh, in a, you know, sometime in March, we'll be having Mike Rothschild, a uh, prominent QAnon critic to come on. And so, yeah, it'll be, you know, uh, it's good to keep an eye on these, you know, alt-right movements as they, as they change. Absolutely. And for you tankies, we'll have a nice North Korea episode coming up as well, right after Martin. So we're all set. And we right. will be back um oh this will come out like monday or tuesday so we will be back at the end of the week with something from martin and then again in the beginning of next week with something on north korea you know we got a lot coming up and like you said we have uh mr rothschild himself as a guest we also have an agorist <laughs> we're also going to talk about the rise of evangelicalism as a political movement 
And again, I'm going to bash on my favorite Trotskyist whenever he gets out of his drug-induced haze. Yeah, I also had a uh, former NYPD detective who messaged me wanting Never to, be, talk to a cop. be on the show. But no, uh, so the update with that is uh, after I expressed interest with it, she was like, I told her, uh, well, she was like, yeah, so I just don't really want to talk any, you know, political issues. Um, I just sucks. try and I just try and look at the bright side of things, the more humorous side of things. Uh, so yeah, uh, now, that's, that's, that's yeah. the view of the one former NYPD officer who had a chance to really do some, uh, you know, a, a good interview that could have tried to maybe explain things, but there, she just seems unwilling to, to talk about that aspect of it. And it's frustrating I, to me, it's like borderline offensive to contact, uh, you know, you know, I mean, that's what we do. We talk on <laughs> yeah, no shit. politics and sociology. And so, and she has a new book out. So what did she just want to come on just to promote her book and then tell, tell knock, knock jokes. Like the, the, no, zeitgeist, yeah. the zeitgeist right now is about trying to figure out how to maintain some semblance of law enforcement while completely in, in some would say reforming uh, the police unions and and how criminal justice system works in this country. And yeah, if you're gonna come at me as a member of the NYPD, like a former member of the NYPD, I'm gonna ask you about fucking stop and frisk. I'm right. gonna ask you about the fucking poli- the democratic politics in New York, the machine politics right. in New York. Of course, and so uh, I, and I, yeah, yeah, and so it's not over yet. I'm hoping I can still try and get her to come on. Maybe we can work out some compromise. But yeah. At least tell uh, me what's wrong with the department, motherfucker. Yeah, there's just there's no way we're gonna there's no way we're gonna do uh, a softball. I mean, it no. Sounds like she she wasn't even talking about a softball interview. She was straight up wanting to come on and just literally not talk about the issues of the day in a substantive no, way. It's no, just, no, 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 not gonna. That's happen. not what this is for. We're doing our true crime episode on that QAnon guy who killed the member of the Gambino family. Yeah. We're not we're not pissing away our time listening to an NYPD detective talk about how they fucking found stolen cars. Uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could always. I'm, just, a, yeah, have I'm her sorry. On, see, see where the see where the chips fall. Um, but yeah, there's still a chance but, we could have her on. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, if if she won't engage in any like political discussion, if she won't engage in like the problems of policing New York, even if you want to bitch about your fucking police union, I don't care. You know, tell me something about the problems of being a cop in New York. Yeah, and and that's what I wanted, and I this came out of nowhere, and I was excited about it. But it once again just reaffirms my belief that even the so-called good cops do not have the fortitude or courage to really take on these hard issues right now. And I, I think, yeah, that's, I think that's fear of the police union. I think the that's, police union in this country keeps, keeps these cops under, uh, you know, tight control. Yeah. It's really disappointing because I, I wanted to talk to her and it, it's a bummer because I had, I had genuine political questions where it's like, Hey, you're a cop. You can't control this. You know what I mean? 
Right. Yeah. We weren't going to rip her apart. No, I, I, I had questions about like, hey, listen, the mayor's office or the governor's office, et cetera, orders you to do this and you can't enforce this order. It's not fair. You know, I had genuine questions about like, dude, what do you do when you're faced with the, like you have a stop and frisk quota? You know, I had genuine questions about what are yeah. the political implications of being a police officer in one of the major cities of this country? What happens when prosecutors and cops completely throw a, a grand jury indictment? You know, right? It, it, Why do your often, courts run twenty four seven? It's often said that a, a prosecutor could indict a ham sandwich, right? Well, right, right. How is it that in a case that clearly needs to be further looked into, uh, how is it that they couldn't even get a basic indictment on 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 some of these? Some of these recent cases, it's it's just it's a it's a travesty, and as, and, as bad as badly as I want to discuss, uh, talk to a cop and make friendships with a cop just for my own true crime purposes, I'm not going to let someone just come on here and just run interference uh, yeah. on a bunch of bullshit. I really wanted to get out of a lot of parking fines in New York State, but yeah, well, it'll never happen. She might she might still be down for that. We'll see. Yeah, well, unless she can remove my tickets in fucking New York City, I'm not listening. That should be our <laughs> first question when she comes yeah. on. So, can you get rid of my double park paid parking tickets? Can you get him out? Of this? I double parked in New York City like three times. So, get me the fuck out of these tickets because otherwise, I can never go back. All right. Anyway, we got a lot of good stuff coming yeah. up. Uh, keep listening. And, and this uh, was definitely a good interview. I, I, I definitely, that was, I enjoyed this. I was glad we got to do some more foreign policy stuff. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, definitely important to, uh, now that we don't have to focus so much on Trump, You're it's right. good that we can start digging into these issues that have been largely unexplored in mainstream media in the country. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, very possible future actions against Latin American countries like Bolivia and Venezuela could easily happen. And we need to have a united front uh, to, to stop it if that happens. For sure. Yeah, this is a good episode. Um, we did a good intro. We did a good outro. We did a good interview. So All again, right. let's, let's not suck each other's dicks too much. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Listen up. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter. The left is dead. Find us assholes. Subscribe on Patreon if you want exclusive episodes. The secret Milo episode is on Patreon, you fucks. Get it? All right. We will be back in a couple of days with an interview with Martin to hear why the military coup did not happen. So good night, Jake. All right. Bye. But I know just who I am, how strong I can be. And I know I'm the only one who can help us be free. This country's yours and mine. It's the home of the brave and free. It's the place for you and me. Back.